out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed. Hello, welcome and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. I'm with you to the end of this interview. As you know, we do love our indie pop, but also we like to sort of veer off road sometimes. And uh, this week, it is going to be the turn of Tony Zanetta, who I spoke to from uh, the wonders of uh, internet land. He was in New York, I was in Norwich. So... He also, um, just a bit of background, was a key figure in the uh, 60s and 70s underground New York and London scene and uh, was part of that Andy Warhol crew at the factory, was in Pork and also worked with David Bowie in that years of the um, Hunky Dory and especially Ziggy Stardust. So he met them all. Anyway, this is the interview and after a bit of casual chat about life, love, poetry, we got down to that first and interesting question. Your background, Tony. Tell us some more. This is it. Tony, over to you. You know, I'm, uh, David and I were exactly the same age. I think I'm six months older than he was. And I came to New York City from upstate New York. Jamestown is where I grew up. And then I went to college in Buffalo for a couple of years. But I ended up in New York in 1966, which was an interesting time in New York City for sure. Yeah, I didn't. And I want, you know, I had studied art and theater. I wanted to be an actor, but I was a little shy and didn't really know how to go about it. But by 1969, I kind of started uh, working a little bit in theater, downtown theater, experimental theater, summer stock. And by 1970, I really discovered the, the Playhouse of the Ridiculous and the genre of theater in New York called Ridiculous Theater. Um, I don't know how much you know about the Playhouse or about Ridiculous Theater, but it was started in the mid-60s by John Vaccaro and Ronnie Tavell. Right. Ronnie was, uh, uh, the, he, wrote, he wrote all the scripts for the early Warhol films. So the Playhouse and the Warhol factory were closely aligned. And a lot of people that were in the Playhouse had come from the factory and vice versa. Yes. So, I, can I can I just ask you one question because in sure. in sixty six, yeah. you know, and this is a very simplistic kind of uh, kind of overview of the sixties in a way because obviously it didn't. Not everybody was having this experience, but but you know we get this idea by sixty seven it was the summer of love and in a simplistic way and I don't know how true this is, you you know we have the London scene which is kind of swinging, we have the West Coast scene which is everyone is kind of hugging and having lovings and taking right. lots of LSD with Ken Kesey and the you know, that whole scene that Tom Wolfe wrote about listening to the Grateful Dead. And then we have this kind of the dark scene of the East Coast and, and everyone wearing black looking incredibly. <laughs> uh, so is that is that cliche kind of true or has it just been more fabricated? Uh, a little bit of both. I think that cliche actually was very much Warhol's factory scene. Velvet Underground, Lou Reed on Dean, all of those people. That was a bit darker. And to some degrees, the Playhouse. But the Playhouse was a little bit maybe more hippie-ish. It was a little bit more like glitter hippie. Uh, and what grew up in the, and what, what came about in the San Francisco a few years later, which was the Cockettes and the Angels of Light, that all kind of stemmed from that too. So New York was um, 
Yeah, we were all baby boomers, basically, is what this whole thing was about. We were all 19, 20, 21 years old, and everything was new. There was a booming uh, off-off-Broadway scene in New York City, new plays, new fashion. Uh, you know, everything had to be new to suit us baby boomers. Yeah. So there was a dark element to it, but it wasn't, possibly it wasn't as dark as the cliche. Right. No. We still had be-ins in the park, in Central Park in 67 and 68, which were just thousands of, you know, kids with long hair and flowing robes. And I think all of this, all of those cities were similar. I mean, I went to London for the first time in 71. It wasn't that much different than what was going on in New York, but we did have that. I, I think in New York, what influenced it was like the, the, the Warhol's factory was very much about methamphetamine. A lot of the, not so much Andy, but a lot of the people that were there, like Andine and Billy Name, took a lot of methamphetamine. Yeah. And, uh, and the methamphetamine made people, uh, that was dark. And that was a bit, you know, it was a bit darker. People were more uh, vicious. <laughs> so the personality was sort of biting humor, especially in the gay scene or the gay scene that was around Andy Warhol. Yes. It was very, uh, you had to be very, very quick-witted. It was all about insulting people and all about being, uh, uh, it was pretty vicious. So even if you weren't taking that drug, I think the, the personality in New York was kind of coming from that. You don't see that in New York anymore, or not nearly as much. People are kinder and gentler. In those days, yeah, there was the hippie thing going on, but we really, sorry, somebody's calling me. I'm not going to answer it. How do I decline this? Hit the red button. I'm <laughs> trying to get there. <laughs> yes, this always happens, doesn't it? It's often a delivery. Yeah. Um, no, so, what, so what was, I mean, was at the same time, because again, there's that image of Andy being this kind of removed character, and you, you obviously had, you know, we all sort of got that image of Evie as well, who came on the scene. I mean, how did that sort of appear? Did there, was there a sort of a, almost like a hierarchical kind of within that kind of group of people? Oh, yeah. The, I mean, the underground, there was, we were all infatuated with stardom and being stars and the Warhol star, the Warhol superstars were, uh, uh, we thought were just, they were just it. So there was, yes, there was Edie, but then a little, and Andine and Nico. And then a little later there was the, uh, um, Jackie Kirk, Darling. And a lot of these people had also, like I said, worked in the playoffs of the ridiculous. So the ridiculous also had this kind of <laughs> star system. If you were a lead player in the ridiculous, you were also considered a, a kind of a superstar. Uh, Jackie Curtis was associated with the ridiculous. Um, Taylor Mead had worked with the ridiculous. Ultraviolet did. So there was this big crossover, and there was amongst—I'm not going to say it was like widespread all over New York, but in the underground, there was this hierarchy of, of superstars. And we all tended to congregate downtown at Max's Kansas City, which was kind of a legendary, it was a very, very restaurant, but in the back, in the, there was a back room that, let me give you a little bit more background. The original Warhol factory was in a section of New York, the East 40s. But in 
the late 60s, they moved down to Union Square. And across the street from the factory was this restaurant, Max's Kansas City. And Max's Kansas City was run by a guy named Mickey Ruskin, who kind of made his businesses by, by uh, catering to artists. So he often would give credit to artists. And uh, th therefore, a lot of artists hung out at Max's Kansas City. And at that time, it was still, even though pop was burgeoning, was still a lot of abstract expressionists, which were was a pretty macho, misogynist group. But in the back room of Max's was the Warhol factory people. And uh, I'm not going to say that it was gay, but gay people were more welcome there. And it was more about pop. Yeah. Because pop, pop art was very separate from, you know, abstract ex expressionist. And, of course, this was the beginning of, of, of pop. Um, and again, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, all of this was created by baby boomers. <laughs> yes. So was there quite a hostility between those two kind of... No, we kind of ignored each other, I think. Right. But the back room was a little bit wilder and, and more... Uh, I mean, it was a lot of fun. It was, wasn't that that big of a room. And it was lit by a red neon sculpture. And there was a red sculpture in the corner, a red light. But by an artist named Frosty Myers. So all of the light in that room was red. So everybody looked kind of glamorous and great. And, um, and a lot of people passed through that room for sure. Yes. <laughs> and did you and did you yourself feel quite comfortable within that kind of environment? In the beginning, I didn't. I went with. I had a roommate that was an artist, and I would go with there with him once in a while. But once I got involved after 1970, when I got involved with. Tony and Gracia's theater company, which was a part of the ridiculous, we would go as a group, and then I began to feel very comfortable there. Yeah. Right. So, did you yourself start developing quite a lot as a person in that short period of time? I did, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I think when I began, I, I, I the first thing I did was a play called World: Birth of a Nation. And it was written by Wayne County, Jane County. But at, at that point, Jane County was still Wayne County. Yes. And uh, it was a cut and paste method. It, it was it was with song titles and and lyrics and and thing bits and pieces from movies. It was pretty wild, uh, pretty it was totally non traditional. And when I got involved in that play, I, I, I met uh, uh, well Tony and Gracia, who would go on to direct Pork, Andy Warhol's play Pork. I met Jerry Vanilla was in the play. Wayne County was in the play. Lee Black Childers, who would later become a, a main character and main man, was the stage manager. Um, yeah, so I kind of found my tribe when, yes. I, got into that, when yes. I got into that production. And did you? And was there also a feeling during that period? Because again, this is kind of probably quite a simplistic kind of overview of the 60s i remember it was a poet called philip larkin said you know the 60s started in about 63 with the first beatles album and then it kind of you know decades don't often sit completely in a decade exactly you know they so kind of 70 and 71 as far as i'm concerned we were actually still part of the 60s yes you know, the 70s hadn't really kicked in but yet. then but then at that point again there was that that kind of changing of and you had that kind of, it felt very, looking back at it, as someone who wasn't, who was only about three at the time, you know, you had the Summer of Love and you had, you know, in the UK, you had something called the 14-hour Technicolor Dream at Ali Pali. You had that kind of gathering of the tribes in 67 in San Francisco with 
Timothy Leary doing his kind of stuff with Allen Ginsberg. And then by the late 60s, early 70s, you know, Charles Manson had appeared. And then you had, you know, Woodstock that appears great in film. But then as people talk about it, it's an absolute disaster area. And and, and then you had Altamont. Then you had the death of Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison. So, and then you had that kind of birth of the glam world that started to appear with people like, um, you know, I suppose David Bowie was the obvious one. And Angie Bowie. So, did were you kind of conscious of those kind of changing kind of cultural states? Oh yeah, you know, for us in New York, I think it was uh, we were very affected by Kent State. At Kent, Kent State, the government killed the, the army went in, and uh, uh, anyway, four people, four students were killed. That was a big shock. Uh, yes, definitely the Manson thing. That seemed like the real end of of of, of something. So yeah, a big damper came on. It was like a dark cloud. Yes, came, came over this flower power summer of love kind of thing. But then again, you see, you do have a good point. There was that darkness in New York anyway that was really was not into flower power at all. It was much more cynical. Yes. <laughs> Well, those classic looks of this, sort of, I suppose, the Velvet Underground with, you know, everyone looking black, you know, very. with black, dark sunglasses, everybody looking very sort of bitter and slightly aloof as well. Because Very much so. That, that, that Warhol contingent was much darker. Yes. And did it, because um, I, I saw this, you know, the film with Guy Pearce playing Andy, you know, with, you know, the film Edie, uh, Factory Girl, it was called. I mean, it, uh, it looked quite brutal. Did it? Was it like that in reality? I never saw that film. I don't think it was that brutal. I, I don't know. I mean, she was a drug addict, you know, so how great could it could it have been? And yes. she burned out very, very... I mean, she's idolized. She was she was a rich girl. She was a drug addict. She burned out very, very quickly. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, I don't know if... She was beautiful, but other than that, I don't know if she was someone to really look up to. <laughs> <laughs> you know, tragic. It's a tragic story for sure. Yeah, it's just. I mean, as far as the Warhol starlets go, I think that Viva, because Viva was a, a beautiful woman. She was very intelligent, funny. She's still on Facebook. She's in her. She's, I guess, pretty close to eighty. She's still very funny. <laughs> oh. but, and I'm sure she dabbled in drugs, but she was not a drug drug addict. She was truly an artist. Yeah. And were you, and did you have, I remember there was a great film in the 50s that had, um, it was one of those Ealing comedies where there was a song, the Self, Self-Preservation Society? No, that's a kink song. Um, you know, some people are good at looking after themselves, aren't they? And they're able to sort of, yes. come, you know, exactly. not get to, you know, can get to the edge, but then kind of pull back a bit when they realise, okay, let's, let's not overdo it. Whereas obviously... Some characters just can't stop and go right. completely. Were you? Are you one of those? Were you one of those characters who could sort of? Well, again, I grew up in a small town in Western New York, Jamestown, New York, and I had and came from an Italian family. I mean, I had a pretty solid middle class background, and uh, I don't know if Midwestern means means much to you people in the UK, but you know. Jamestown, even though it was in New York State, was very Midwestern, and the values are a little different. So, yes, I was a person who, by nature, could pull back. And as a matter of fact, it wasn't until I got involved with the world and the Ingrassia group that I really began to kind of really let loose and 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 um, 
maybe a, uh, how, do I, how do I put this? <laughs> I didn't feel I was sort of as wild or as crazy as they were. I sort of had to work at it. Of course, I was, but <laughs> yes. But I still had that 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 um, um, I'm losing my words. You know, ability to pull back for sure. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you can see some people have got that little bit of um, ability to be a little bit distant, or at least a bit cynical. You know, they can buy the T-shirt, but they don't necessarily have to subscribe fully and get the tattoos as well I suppose I mean that's, that's right something that's, like that yeah. something, something very simplistic like that because um because then obviously talking of exciting and wild people you know you had Angie Bowie coming along into the scene because I did bizarrely I did an interview with Angie a couple of years ago oh you did quite, quite recently who's who's very chir chir chirpy still um and you know it was kind of interesting because you then sort of went on to work with David at that stage didn't you in the early 70s Yes, we met in 1971 when that theater group that I became involved in then was kind of discovered by Warhol. Warhol uh, drafted Tony Ingrassia, who was a playwright and director, to put together the theatrical piece that became Pork, which was um, quote-unquote written by Andy Warhol. What it was was... was um, um, transcriptions of tape-recorded conversations that he had had, mainly with Bridget Polk, but also with other superstars. In the late 60s, the, uh, it was a brand-new device. was a, a portable tape recorder that, you, that had an attachment that you could put on your phone. So it became a big trend for people to record their telephone conversations. So Andy had hours and hours and hours of these recorded telephone conversations. He gave them to Tony and Gracia, uh, the transcriptions to Tony and Gracia, like probably 200 hours of them, and asked him to kind of edit them down into and, and turn them into a quote-unquote play or some kind of a performance. Yeah. So in some ways it wasn't very different. I mean, you know, Andy's process was, because Andy was really an illustrator, so he became a fine artist, but really by, you know, there were illustrations of soup cans and soup can the illustrations, or they were paintings of soup cans. So they were paintings of an illustration that was then put on a wall in a gallery and then perceived as pop art. So really it was very conceptual. And the play was the same thing. It was something that was from real life, taped conversations, edited together to make some sort of a, a structure put on the stage and perceived as a play. So that was conceptual also. Really, it was a, kind of like the idea of, well, what is a play? Is this a play? Is it not a yes. play? But it, it, it was considered a play. Yes, it was a play. So Pork was a play. And we did it in New York, and then it, it, went, it moved to London. And David had been in uh, the United States the year before on a promotional tour for Mercury Records, and, you know, he had a manager called Ken Pitt, who yes. was very taken with uh, uh, Warhol and the Warhol scene. Uh, I think he visited the factory at least once or twice, trying to do some kind of business with them. I, I'm, not, I'm a little cloudy on that. but So he had been kind of filling David's head with, uh, you know, the factory and Warhol. And then when David is, and the Velvet Underground, very key, the Velvet Underground. And again, going back to your point about this darkness, because David was not 
I wouldn't consider his work dark or him dark at all. He was much more at that time still kind of a folk singer or um, I don't want to say lightweight, but well, yes, yeah, but he, but but it's interesting because because Bowie, I guess you know he was my kind of first love. You know, it was the first single I bought and the first album, and then you know from that sort of early seventies, and you know stuck with him, stuck with Bowie, you know, all my life and all his ups and downs with his kind of musical output and stuff like that. But the interesting thing, going to his sixties work, I realised right. it would have been completely now and the and as as then completely ignored because it was pretty dreadful really when you think what he was releasing and what other right. what other people were releasing like the stones right. the kinks the beatles the doors you know etc etc you know the jefferson airplane and everybody i mean when you looked at what they were releasing and then david's kind of little fey folk songs which are a bit of an anthony newley vocal you think right I can't believe even 10 people would have bought that. It's only, we only are fascinated with that because what he became, but that was one hell of a shift from his ditty little folk numbers to blimey. Where did that sort of come from, David? And that was, it wasn't just a year or two. It was quite a while, actually. And I think the things that changed him were number one, Mick Ronson. When he met Mick Ronson and began to work with Mick Ronson, because Mick Ronson, changed the sound quite a bit. It was a heavier guitar sound. It had a lot more, you know, it was gutsier. Yeah. Uh, probably Tony Visconti, the producer as well. But also the discovery of the Velvet Underground and Iggy Pop. And then Pork, Pork was in, uh, coincidentally in London. So Pork became his entree into that Warhol world. Um, we met, we became friends, but I think that was, I mean, I think he was interested in meeting me particular, in particular because he felt that I represented the Warhol world, which was only by happenstance. I mean, I really didn't, but, but I did because I was in Pork. Yes. And I think, you know, that I, I think Pork was intriguing because, it, I mean, it really was a document of the factory. So it kind of was a look into how uh, people behaved there, how they spoke, what they spoke about. Um, anyway, yeah. and there was a certain outrageousness about the world that Pork represented, uh, a flamboyance and an outrageousness and an energy that I think also attracted David. And of course, the theatricality, because he was, he, what set him apart, as far as I'm concerned, from other uh, uh, people working in the same area as he was at that time, was his love of, of, of theatricality. Yes. Well, his work with Lindsay Kemp was probably quite amazing. I Not, think that was key. And also, yeah. he it was he, definitely key. And also, he did, he did love his kind of quirky, kind of eclectic folk kind of bands which you know yeah. most are really cult artists but um yes they're, they're but not see, that the other thing if you look at what Lindsay was doing and i keep talking about the ridiculous theater in new york and the playhouse of the ridiculous they were actually influenced by very similar things mainly japanese theater kabuki um outrage uh, 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 exaggeration certain kinds of makeup uh well, glitter in the New York in, in the New York scene, not so much glitter with Lindsay. Also, like cutting and pasting different genres together, not uh, you know throwing away the idea of traditional uh, uh, theater and creating something new by putting bits and pieces of 
circus and, and rock and roll and fashion and dance and, you know, all these things together to create basically a new form. Even yes. though Lindsay was more mime, he, was do he wasn't certainly pure mime. He put everything together. And that was the same thing that was happening in New York with the Playhouse. Yeah. And, and that's what David did in his own way, of course, putting different forms together to create a whole new, um, a whole new thing. Absolutely. And did, um, I mean, obviously, you know, David, again, quite simplistically, went from someone like Hermione, who he wrote a song about, to Angie, quite right. different characters. Did that, did you also feel that if it wasn't for her sort of going, voila, that, um, that he wouldn't have quite sort of zoomed into the world that he did? Well, it's the thing about Angie is that she was, um, she was American. She was very smart, and she was exuberant. She had a lot of energy, and she focused that energy on him. She was ex she was a two hundred percent supportive of everything that he did, and she kind of demanded that anybody around him be that supportive. <laughs> so what, I can't say she did this literally, or she did that, or she did the other thing. But that kind of support, uh, and, and and really. Uh, uh, um, um, again, my, my, my sometimes my words escape me. I am 73 years old. <laughs> yes, well, we live in train, yes. You know, the love that she had for him, um, it goes a long way for someone. If you have someone around you who's, who's that supportive, it, it really helps you believe a little bit more in yourself. So she encouraged every idea that he came up with. And she did, did do more than that. She did go out and she brought people in. She brought fabrics and she went shopping she had you know she she did contribute quite a bit she's really not been given her due uh and another but on the other hand she was not his manager she didn't make business deal you know she's given credit for some things that she didn't do yes but she she did contribute a lot absolutely and did you feel because you were you were sort of you were on was it tour with with um Yes, Dave, you were on tour with the Ziggy Stardust experience, which, oh, yeah. must, which must have felt like quite the, the journey because cause that just took off. But it was also completely new. It wasn't like, you know, lots of the 60s leftovers just doing the same. No, it was completely new. And, yeah, and it, Very and, exciting because it was uncharted territory and uh, for all of us. And it just, it just took off like wildfire. So to be on that, that train, so to speak, uh, was pretty exhilarating because it went so fast. Watching what happened, it was like, you know, from, from zero to 100 in a very short period of time. Yeah. And did you feel, because you were tour manager for that, that period. Yeah, I was, did, did you do the, you did the UK, did you do the, you did the USA, did you do the UK as well? Mm -hmm. No, I didn't. I left the tour in the UK. I, I, I went on a few. I became tour manager because I had been doing things for Tony DeFries in, in uh, New York after David was signed to RCA Records. And I w began to do more and more and more. Then I went to England the summer of 71. I went to London with Tony during the time of the Rainbow Shows. And I went on the road for, I don't know, a week or two. They, they did some show, a couple of shows in Manchester and some smaller places in, in, in the UK. And there was not a road manager. I didn't even know what a road manager was. 
I just happened to be there and I, and I, I felt a little bit like a fifth wheel cause I really had no function. You know, it was kind of awkward. <laughs> so I automatically began to do certain organizational things because like, for instance, we got to whatever town and we got to the hotel and we're all just sitting there because no one really checked us in. No one got the room keys. I mean, I was just tired and wanted to go to my room. Yeah. So <laughs> I went to the desk, checked everyone in, got their keys, passed out the keys, then did it, you know, wrote down what room everybody was in, which I didn't know it was called a room manifest. So I began to kind of naturally doing things that are our road manager duties. Yes. In order to sort of like justify why, why the hell was I there anyway? <laughs> yeah. And out of selfishness, because again, I wanted to get to my room. <laughs> and that grew into becoming the road manager and then the tour manager. Yeah. Yeah. And did you, and what did you think of the whole, the Ziggy presentation? Did you feel, you know, because at that time. Well, I was, I, well, I, I let me be totally honest. I, um, you know, the first thing I saw was the rainbow show, the rainbow show. The famous show where that he did with Lindsay Kemp and the mime troupe. So what he, I mean, it was admirable what he was trying to do and he got tremendous reaction and press. I personally thought it was a disaster. <laughs> you know, it was a, the scaffolding that spanned the stage and on the scaffolding was the mime troupe, Lindsay and a few mimes kind of prancing around doing mime and underneath it was David and the spiders doing rock and roll, but there was a big disconnect. Right. And the focus really wasn't clear. It was kind of like, I don't really want to see these mimes that have, are having nothing to do with what he was doing. You know, it just wasn't clear. I thought it, I, I was, I was kind of like not embarrassed. I just was afraid. I didn't know what to say because this was the first time I had seen Ziggy. <laughs> but then, then we went to Manchester. No mimes, just David and the band. Uh, and I was awestruck because they were fantastic. He was just, you know, uh, beyond anything. He, 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 you can keep your eyes off of him. The sound was great. Everything about it was absolutely fantastic. So, uh, but they had still been considered. The, the, the idea was that these mime people were going to go to the U.S. on the tour. And I spoke to Tony DeFries. I said, well, you, you really can't bring them. It, it would have been a disaster. We would never have heard of David Bowie again because it would have been, sorry, a laughing stock. And, and I'm not putting Lindsey Kemp or his troupe down because I became quite a fan of Lindsey Kemp's work. It just didn't work together. Yes. You know? And well, yes, it was just too true. ambitious and too, and too, uh, no, it just didn't work. So at this stage, then, you left that behind. Then what happens next? Well, we went to the United States and went on tour for the next three months. That was the fall of uh, 72. So he got to the United States in, in September of 72. We, our first date was in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, we played to a 3,000-seat hall. That was September. By December, we went back to Cleveland, Ohio, and played to 20,000 people. So that was a pretty fast progression. Wow. Uh, he had been on the cover of Rolling Stone. The press was phenomenal. We didn't make money. We lost a fortune because the tour was very badly planned. None of us knew what we were doing. Um, 
but it was, still was a success because it created a big, you know, a big, big splash. But financially, no, it was not good. And and actually, he still wasn't. He wasn't selling records, but everybody wanted to see him play. Yes, absolutely. And that's when he'd, and at that stage, he'd get, got Mike Garson as well on keyboards. Hadn't he? Well, Mike, yes. Yeah, so I mean, you know, that was a happy accident. There was a lot of synchronicity in all of this, and a lot of happy accidents. Yes. He needed a piano player. He was rehearsing in the RCA studios, and Mike Garson just happened to be there, re- rehearsing for something else. And uh, Mike Garson played for him, and he said, oh, can you go on tour with us? I mean, tomorrow. (laughs) And he did. I mean, I think that was a very happy accident because Mike Garson, again, just as uh, Ronson has had such a huge influence on the sound, Garson did too. I mean, Garson's piano really brought a whole another element to the sound that was pretty unique and fantastic. I mean, maybe more cabaret-like, but it was rock and roll cabaret. It was, it was, it was unique and it was great. Yes. You hear that mostly on the Aladdin Sane album, but that was def- also on that Ziggy tour. Well, he had that jazz, that jazz kind of influence. Didn't he? Yeah. That was quite, quite a shame. David had been kind of infatuated with a woman named Annette Peacock. Uh, Annette Peacock was an experimental jazz singer who also was on RCA Records. And she was doing things with the synthesizers, very avant-garde music, very interesting woman. And Mike Garson played for her. That's basically how, how, uh, how he got Mike through Annette. Yes. And one, and just because I guess then, did you have a moment where you decided that was going to be it? the end of that kind of chapter for you with David and Ziggy? Well, no, I didn't have that moment until 1975 when the management company fell apart, when David's relationship with Tony DeFries totally collapsed. Yes, that was not good. I worked, really, I worked for Tony DeFries. I worked for Tony DeFries's main man, and that was part of the bone of contention. Who was main man, Tony DeFries or David Bowie? (laughs) There was a little confusion there. And there was, I mean, a lot of things went wrong and it's almost not important anymore because I think it would have been inevitable, you know, it was inevitable that that, that they would break up. But they had been, you know, I can't uh, underestimate, I don't think anyone should underestimate the power of that relationship and how much Tony DeFries contributed to the success of David Bowie because on a business level, he certainly made it happen. He was very shrewd. He made incredible decisions and took incredible, very brave actions to make this all happen. And and he won. I mean, it did happen. Yes. (laughs) Without him, I'm not so sure that it would have. No, but there's a lot of things because I know the photography or the, um, yes, the work of, Mick Rock was also quite important to that kind of level. Well, it was important in that, and also you see, you can't, you know, you, you can you can say, well, so-and-so did this, so-and-so did that, so-and-so did that. Of course, if David Bowie hadn't been focused, and um, it wouldn't have happened. But the, the, I think the photography with Mick Rock is very interesting because he's, he was the only photographer, number one, in the, in the early, early days. And he did some sessions with David at Haddon Hall, which are pretty famous now. You can see them. Yes. But you can see, if you look at those contact sheets, you could see that David studied those contact sheets. 
He was very, very quick. And by looking at all those contact sheets, and he did that from then on, he learned. And he knew what, what, you know, what looked good, what didn't look good, how he should pose, how he shouldn't pose. He was a very, very, very quick learner. And because he was so focused, I mean, this is a man that didn't really, he really didn't have any interests outside of his work. Now, that encompassed a lot of interests because he took everything in that passed him, you know, that, that, that he came across and, and integrated it into the work, whether it was a person or a book or an idea. So it made him a pretty broad-minded person, but really it was all about the work. He truly was an artist who took everything around him and brought it in and created art out of it. And, and so those, those, those photographs that Mick Rock did were so important. Because yeah. it really showed him how to present himself. And also, the, the, the relationship he had with Freddie Beretta as well was quite important as well. What did you make of Freddie? Oh, I loved Freddie. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> he was the Mad Queen. Really fun. Very talented. But, you know, Freddie was basically a tailor. And so the clothes... Really, Angie and David dictated, the, they really designed the outfits. I mean, I don't want to take away from Freddie, but I mean, Freddie certainly made a big contribution, but he kind of, uh, you know, he could, he could complete their ideas, and he did so brilliantly. But the other thing with Freddie is, you know, it started out by, um, um, you know, they all met at the Sombrero, which was a gay club in, in London at the time, a dance club which uh, was a lot of fun. It was very, had a light up dance floor. It was pretty flamboyant or a lot of flamboyant queens certainly would go there. Yes. And it was a good place to, you know, uh, so-and-so would make an entrance and every, the whole place would stop to see who would come in. And Freddie was very attractive and, could, uh, uh, and had a great look, which uh, David was kind of infatuated with. So David decided when he started writing Ziggy, he started writing some material and the idea of it was sort of as it was a musical and he wanted Freddie to play Ziggy Stardust. So he created that group, Arnold Corns. And Arnold right. Corns was really the dress rehearsal for Ziggy Stardust. But I think that enabled him to really step back even further and look at what he was doing as a piece of theater rather than, you know, it really wasn't about David Bowie on stage. It became, I'm getting ahead of myself. So he tried this all out on uh, Freddie because he thought Freddie would make a great rock star. Of course, Freddie couldn't sing and Freddie really wasn't a performer, so it didn't work. But that planted the seed in him that he could play this character, which was Ziggy Stardust. So it wasn't really until he came up with that and began seeing that as a role that he could play as an actor, that David Bowie could play a role. Ziggy. Yes. Interesting. That Everything changed. That became exciting and dynamic because it wasn't him anymore. He had totally, he, he totally, it was like clicking, a, you know, a light switch on and, be, and finding total freedom in that role. So it was no longer that boring folky. No, he was not it, a boring folky. It was the guy that had studied with Lindsay, the guy that had been studying theater and music for years, who now found the perfect vehicle for himself. He played this role. And then people took the role, Ziggy, as David. 
It wasn't, really wasn't David, it was Ziggy. But by playing that role for the next year and a half, it brought him certainly to the next level in his own evolution. You know, and then he could be Ziggy Stardust and play whatever, I mean, he could be David Bowie and play whatever part he wanted to play. And yes. he did that for the rest of his life. He did, he certainly did. Now, one character that we've all grown to love, mainly because we saw the film, I don't know if you've seen it, is Danny Fields. Oh, Danny Fields, he's a fabulous guy. He, and um, I don't know if you've seen that particular film that they made about him, Danny. Um, but yes, so what was, what, when did you first bump into Danny? Well, Danny is one of those people who, I, mean, I ran into him fairly early on. I didn't really know him until a little bit later, but Danny was one of the stalwarts of Max's Kansas City. What Max's Kansas City became by the late 60s, like 69, 70, there was a group of writers who were kind of a, one of the, they were one of the main groups in that back room. It was Danny, it was uh, Lisa Robinson, it was a few others anyway. But Danny, Danny's interesting because Danny had gone to, he was part of the Cambridge crowd that began to hang out at the factory. That's how Edie Sedgwick got to the factory. So Danny goes all the way back to like right. five with Warhol and Edie and this one and that one. Then Danny was at the center of the, of the Max's scene. Then Danny managed Iggy Pop. Danny was involved with Jim Morrison and then Iggy Pop. And then Danny is the one who in, in 71, when David came to New York to sign with RCA, and I brought him to Max's Kansas City, it was Danny who was there. Iggy was staying at his uh, apartment in New York. Danny went uh, and called Iggy to come over and meet David because David had talked a little bit about Iggy in the press. So Danny was the conduit between Iggy and David, for sure. Yeah. Then, you know, D D Danny went on to manage the Ramones. Um, Danny's an interesting guy because he was just, he was always like kind of the hippest guy in the room. And very nice also. You, you know, you liked Danny. He wasn't hip in a nasty way or he wasn't like, he, he was better than you. He was a fabulous guy. Very, very, very nice, funny, really smart. But always had his finger on the pulse of what was happening. Yes. And it but was he never, you know, he wasn't really, he, in, in a way, he's kind of not tragic because he's so, he is well respected, but he wasn't, you know, he never made a lot of money. He wasn't the greatest manager. He didn't write a great book, but he was always there and a big influence on everybody else. Well, from that particular film, it was like he, he you know, a bit like one of those artists or bands or that album, you know, like I suppose the first Velvet Underground album. Um, you know, it probably didn't sell much, but the influence it had was huge. And Danny, again, seems to have been in, in all these scenes and probably helped to make it happen that then a lot of people were influenced by that piece of work. But that original person or that, that, that sort of band probably didn't make a lot. So his, his relationship with Iggy sounds quite tricky. And, and yeah. the, But Iggy and the Stooges were hugely influential. And the Ramones themselves, you know, he didn't... You know, he was always, you know, and working with people like Jim Morrison and Nico and, and all that. You know, it, I suppose it made a good film because it was like, with most things, you know, they, it's incredibly important, but there isn't a particular happy, happy ending. It's kind of, it ends in a bit of a car crash, doesn't it? And then he moves on to the next project or the next group of people. But, um, but he has a sort of, a, a slightly sort of uh, casual and cool style about him. Very casual, right. Lee Black Childers was a similar person. 
he was involved in many, many scenes and had a great, great influence. Never ran any money. I mean, died tragically. Uh, he and Danny were very good friends for years. Uh, so there are those people, for sure. Yes. So what about yourself? I mean, then, as you went through the 70s, there was the punk period into the 80s. So did you, you know, did you sort of also have to sort of then find another scene? Because obviously, having worked with people like Warhol and being in that world and Pork and then Bowie, you must have felt sometimes like, my God, perhaps I should just get a regular life. I did. Absolutely. <laughs> I had to totally reinvent myself. <laughs> um, you know, it was like being thrust out of a whirlwind or something. I, I mean, I, I, um, I floundered for a long time. I did go back to doing, after the whole main man days and, 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 and uh, working with Bowie, I did go back into theater. I worked with a few, uh, a few experimental companies. I worked with the Playhouse of the Ridiculous. I went to Europe with them. I I, I, I I toured around with another company. I directed some things. I started doing some staging. I, I did, uh, uh, my favorite thing was I did some decor for nightclubs, which was great, great fun. I worked with a, a woman in New York called Diane Brill, who was sort of the queen of the 80s nightclubs. And we did really fun, fun, uh, fun projects. But, you know, it wasn't, it was always difficult because I was struggling to make a living and I was really always questioning my identity. It was like, well, who, who, what happened? And finally I found some, by doing this, this decor in nightclubs, I began to focus more on, on, on uh, styling and decor. And I ended up working for many years, <laughs> producing and designing showrooms in the textile industry of all places. Um, which actually turned out to be kind of quite fun uh, because it was a it was big budgets. It was a big space, and I could do. I had pretty much free reign for many years to do whatever I wanted. Yes, it was an interesting place to end up, and I was able to make a living. That was the best thing. About it. That was the best thing because it's interesting because I've you know I've been doing interviews on one particular show where it's mostly bands from the eighties and and sort of slightly alternative kind of indie bands. And most of them have a five-year narrative. You know, they, you know, they're young kids. They, they sort of, yeah. probably, they're probably on the dole. They're sort of, you know, drinking and smoking a bit. They, they, you know, they make a, they get themselves together. They make a single. John Peel, who was this DJ in England, would sort of give it a play. They get John Peel session. That first album, things going really well. Ish. Second album, not so well. If anybody ever tours America, it ends in tears, especially from the UK, because I don't think they realise just how big it is and how hard it's going to be. On right. Them. And then they split and then they have to then do the next thing. And sometimes they go into another band. But a lot of people just say, actually, I feel like I've been like absolutely put through the ringer and I need to um, get myself back together. Is that were you slightly like that yourself? Cause yeah, very much. I, I was very much like that. You know, if you think about it, like even the spiders. So suddenly they're thrust into the limelight. They're going everywhere by the limousine and everyone wants to meet them. These were boys from Hull, from Northern England. They weren't that well educated. They had never been anywhere. This is, this is a difficult thing to, 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 to deal with. In a way, it's, you know, it's, it says a lot about our society and about capitalism because they're just picked up, chewed up, and spit out. Yes. <laughs> I know. My trajectory was literally five years. I would say from 70 to 75. 
And then suddenly, I didn't know what happened, you know. And along the way, I developed a pretty bad habit of drugs and alcohol, which took me a while to get over. And no, I, I went into a depression. I, 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 I was lost. But I think, again, we've talked about my, my background and how I was able to sort of uh, have some sort of resilience. I did bounce back eventually. I think I was very lucky. And I was even luckier that I found a way eventually to earn a living. Because, um, no, it's a, it's a, it certainly wasn't unique to me. It was a typical story for many, many, many people. Yeah. David wrote a song about it called Five Years. You know, it, it, uh, <laughs> yeah. he was smart. You know, he was a smart one. And he, of course, lasted for, what, 40, 50 years. <laughs> well, he did. And how do you, and how do you sort of, I mean, obviously, people like Danny are still alive, but an awful lot of people like Andy died in the 60s, in, in the 80s. 80s. Um, but 1980-something, was it? Five or six, which was a bit of a shock. Yeah. And, then, and David died a few years ago. Does that, I mean, how do you sort of, because obviously, I mean, I, it's interesting, I've I, I done a couple of interviews with, with Woody, with Mansi, and, and, you know, you have that intense relationship. You know, you, you're not just part of a band who are successful, you sort of literally help to make this person who they are. And then you right. slightly get dropped and it's kind of messy. No one no one does the, quite the right thing, but no one's been particularly horrible. It's just like, it just hasn't been managed very well. And then, right. you, then you're back into being a, a kind of a drummer in a pub band, basically, you know, scraping yeah. living. And, and, you know, that, that relationship is kind of hard. But then towards the end of David's life, I think he'd sort of reached out to a few people that he knew. Just to say, look, I'm, you know, I'm not saying sorry, but I'm also just saying, you know, yeah, I just wanted to say hi, really, and and sort of probably just feeling like you're thinking about them because I know he he uh, phoned Trevor Boulder, who was the bass player, when he realised that Trevor was about to die, and I think mm -hmm. that kind of made the world, you know, just like, oh, that's really nice because you know we had that special relationship and special time, and then literally that was it, and you know, for David, he goes on to do all this stuff. For other people, it's a bit like, oh, right, I'll just scrape a living so i just often wonder how how it is for you when you sort of not kind of be in touch with those people anymore but then you know you hear oh yeah so-and-so's died or and they're having to process that right well my you know um david i had always hoped to 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 reach out to him or that he would reach out to me however because i wrote that book with henry edwards called stardust that put me on his bad list forever not that the book said anything terrible, but but he 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 um, considered anything like that a betrayal. So I don't think with me that he would or he didn't get over that evidently. So that was always a regret of mine that we because David and I were very very close for a few years and then we weren't, you know. Yes. So that always what, and when you're, when you are, and you, what you said is exactly right. When you're a part, you know, it's almost like, I look at it as like a pyramid. The pyramid has a point on top, but there's a wide base. And that's the same thing with uh, uh, working for someone that becomes very successful in that way. The, the, David was the pinnacle. He was on the point of the pyramid, but all of the rest of us were supporting that point and creating it. So when you're um, um, dismissed or when it's over and that, that point goes on or the star goes on, you know, you, you, you do feel not so good about it. Yeah. I think Woody, Woody 
kind of disappeared for years and years and years. I'm very glad for what, uh, you know, that Woody found a way to make all of that work for himself eventually, that, he, that he's recording and touring. He wrote that book. I, I'm very, very happy for Woody. Um, Ronson, you know, I know that David had reached out to Ronson towards the end of Ronson's life, but that's a real tragedy that Mick didn't live long enough to sort of reap some of the rewards of what he had contributed. Yes. Because Mick really kind of struggled for a long time. I mean, not that he didn't do anything. He was active, but it was always a struggle. Um, and he was a fantastic, fantastic guy. Well, as I know David was always saying that was his Jeff Beck. You know, he was always looking for his Jeff Beck. So obviously Jeff Beck was there and he'd done his stuff a lot in the 60s. Obviously he still does. But, but you know, Mick Ronson came along and it's like, ah, right, I've got my Jeff Beck, you know, so to speak. So... He was he was able to give it that kind of quality. It wasn't just heavy; it was just kind of quite unique, really. It was quite a, a sound. Well, it was also necessary. I mean, because it created a balance that David could. I mean, I was you know David was very astute, very. Uh, you, you had mentioned that some of his work was light in the past, but but the, with Mount Ronson, there, there was a balance, and mm-hmm. it allowed you to hear David more clearly. Then he, you would have if it, he hadn't had that balance of what Mick brought to it. Yes, but Mick did all the arranging. I mean, basically, who produced that "Walk on the Wild Side" album? I would say it was more Mick than David, because David was preoccupied with what, what he, he was doing, you know, on his own, which he should have been. But, um, but, but Mick didn't get real credit. No, he didn't. He didn't, what, he didn't get producer credit. He didn't get co-writing credit. He didn't get points on the records, which would have made a big difference in his life going, you know, one or two points would have made his life totally different. He didn't get any of that. So, So, um, I mean, what would, I mean, when you look back on on sort of that piece of work, I mean, what's your fondest moment, you know, where you thought, yeah, that was something, was it kind of working with Ziggy or was it working with Pork and Andy? Oh, Pork was a very... You know, high point in my life, absolutely. <laughs> that was incredible. Ziggy was pretty incredible. And for me, you know, was working with my friends. And Pork was Cherry, Vanilla, Lee Childers was the stage manager. Jamie Andrews was, was, was in the play. And then we all worked at Main Man together. So Main, the wonderful thing about Main Man was it was really a group of people who really, really loved each other. Yeah. And loved David, and we loved what David was doing. We loved Angie. Angie's mad at me now for whatever reasons, but we were very close um, for many, many years. I adored Angie. Um, so, it, it, you know, when you uh, can get paid, we actually, we didn't even get paid in the beginning. I mean, people think, well, everything was a rip-up. We didn't get paid. <laughs> we we yeah. did get our rents paid. And we got a few dollars every week for like living expenses, but we were not making money on this. Eventually, we got kind of real salaries, but not compared to like what Elton John's people got or Rod Stewart's people got or anything like that. We were we were doing this because we were passionate about it. Uh, we were pa- and and we loved being with each other and loved working with each other. And I think that kind of energy is very very special. Yes, and it, and it really helped. And recently I've looked at it in another way. I, re- I realized we we were not part of David Bowie's management team. We were part of Ziggy Stardust's management team. Right. We were the per- main man was the perfect 
support for Ziggy Stardust. Once Ziggy had been launched into the cosmos, it really wasn't necessary anymore. Then it became an impediment. <laughs> That's interesting. That's what I think. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a very good one because then you had Aladdin Sane and then you had... Well, the, no, I, I'm, not, I, I'm going right up to Young American. Yeah, well, I was going to say, I, I couldn't quite remember what came next, whether it was Diamond Dog or Young American. Well, it was Aladdin Sane, then, then Pin Ups, then Diamond, then Diamond Dogs, then Young Americans. Yeah. But that was still all under the main man umbrella. But, you know, main man was so flashy and flamboyant that at a certain point, and it was at that point, I think when David stepped away from Ziggy, he also wanted to step away from that flamboyance. Yeah. You know, he when, wanted... what, and when was the last time you saw Tony DeFries? I haven't seen Tony DeFries since the early 80s. However, after not any contact for many years, we began communicating last year. We talk on the phone occasionally. Um, actually, the, somebody's working on a podcast about Main Man that I've been involved in. And Tony and I did an interview together, which was fun. So, you know, I adored Tony DeFries. Tony DeFries was a brilliant man, totally unique individual. Yeah. <laughs> Never anyone quite like Tony DeFries. Yes. <laughs> and does he look back on that period with fondness? Oh, yes, I, I'm sure. I think, I probably shouldn't say this, but I will. I think, you know, because he's been portrayed as a villain for so many years, he'd like to, and he he just stepped away, he didn't really mind in a way. I think now that he's older, he wants to like kind of set the record straight a little bit and say, well, you can think what you want, but this is what really happened. You yeah. know, he did some brilliant deals. Like, for instance, in those days, um, artists... Um, um, their masters were owned by the record companies. They did not own their masters, their master recordings. Tony DeFries leased the recordings to RCA. The RCA did not own the recordings. Tony DeFries and David Bowie owned the recordings. They, Tony DeFries's big mantra always was catalog. And in the long run, in the long run, this catalog is going to be worth a fortune. It doesn't matter if we make money today. In the long run, and of course he was right. He was yeah. right. And, and part of David's long run and part of David's uh, financial success was due to that very fact because uh, they owned them together for a while. Eventually the, the masters reverted to David or David bought out Tony DeFries. So David owned his work. Most artists do not own their work. This is true. This is very true. And just lastly, what would you what would you say to a, an eighteen year old self? You know, like if if you thought God, it was one thing, if, if someone just could have whispered that to me, to me, yeah, you know, just that kind oh. of that that the sort of bit of wisdom, because obviously there's, you know, I mean, it's a bit, it's always a bit of a tricky one, but that that one thing that you think more than anything, then what you've kind of learned over the decades. Well, I, I know exactly what I would say. And, and I, and I didn't understand it's something that a psychic said to me when I was sort of struggling later on in the seventies and early eighties, late, late seventies and early eighties, she said to me, go with the music. And I took it literally. I thought, Oh, does that mean I have to work with bands? No, you, I, I, what I see now is go with the music in your head. If you can, you know, slow down, listen to what is in yourself and go for it. 
So go with your own passions. And which is what certainly someone like David did. He always believed in himself. He went with his passion. Yeah. My problem always was self-doubt. I did not go with the music. I mean, I've kind of learned to, but it took me many, many, many years. If I could say something to my 18-year-old self, it would be go with the music. Excellent. That's amazing. Actually, that's the, because, you know, a lot of people have, you know, I always find that curious. And, you know, there's, there's a, there's a lot of the usual obvious ones, but um, that's a good one. I like that one. Right. Well, I see it in young people that I work with. I see, I see that they've got a kern of some kernel of some kind of brilliance in them, but they don't trust it, you know, or they have some sort of self doubt. And I try to always encourage people: no, just keep doing what you're doing because that's, you know, it, it's like you have to. Sh you ha we all we all have we're all different, but we all have some kind of a light in us. Yes. It's not the same. And I think our, our uh, and now I'm going to get really corny. In Catholicism, <laughs> you're taught to know God, to love him, and to serve him. That's the basic purpose of life. If you take, take, I and mean, the word God can like, send you into outer, forget, take the word God out of it. To know, to love, to serve. I think it really does boil down to that. To know, to love, to serve. But that's to know yourself. God, that's very good. I'm writing this down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's good. I like that one a lot. Well, David, this is a pleasure. Yes. Well, look, Tony, look, this is amazing. Thank you ever so much. And when I do the get this done, I'll um, send you a link and, and put it out. Okay, there. great. Yeah. But that's amazing. Well, look, have an amazing day. Look, fingers crossed it's all going to get better. Yeah, be safe. This is such a strange moment. But, yes. Uh, it's, it's like most things you think, yeah, I've been there, done it. And you think quite the same it's a little bit yeah. a bit different but look <laughs> right, right. it's a, yeah i i'd still actually i'm glad we got facetime going if, if if um if nothing else i probably yeah it's funny actually i don't know it must be on somewhere i probably could have been looking at you for oh you're month. not seeing it I've, I've been watching you the whole time i haven't seen you once i don't know <laughs> i don't know where i don't even know how to turn this off you mean I didn't have to comb my hair? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I know, I need a haircut, but um, I don't know how I'm going to... Oh. Anyway, look, this has been amazing. Okay. So I'm fascinated. Thank, Thank you so much. Take care there. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm not sure I know how to turn it off either. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> okay, let's see. Oh, yeah, I, I've got it. You got Bye -bye. it. See you later.